Thank you, as always, for listening to Caleb vs. Self. On this episode, I get a chance to speak with Carly, a recovery advocate and recovery warrior. We talk about some of the root causes of addiction, how Carly built her support community during recovery, and how she spent time lobbying in New York State for recovery programs. Certainly an interesting and eye-opening conversation for me, especially in regards to how to continue to help support my friends and family. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline at 1-800-662-HELP, 1-800-662-4357. Hopefully you guys uh, get to learn a little bit something out of this podcast, and if you are someone who may be struggling or know someone who is struggling, please reach out, get them help. Carly, thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, I've got Carly on with me, uh, an addiction advocate. What would you describe yourself as, I guess, first and foremost, as we kind of get to know you? Oh, jeepers. How long do I have to describe myself? (laughs) As long as you need. (laughs) Addiction advocate and uh, addiction, just spreading awareness, I guess, would be a good place to start. Well, you've done a whole lot of stuff just in that avenue. I mean, I know there's Rock and Recovery Talk Show that you've done. There is uh, Here's Hope. Uh, you've been a part of Youth Voices Matter, Friends of Recovery for New York. I'm sure there's more, but you've done quite a bit in that space. Um, aside from, I guess, anything else, what is it that ultimately got you into you know being such an advocate for addiction and recovery? Yeah, I think my own personal recovery. And that would be the fact that I am in recovery from addiction. And on, well, next month, I'll celebrate seven years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, you know, addiction is, is definitely a family disease as well. And I have, you know, firsthand experience being a daughter of a mom who's also in recovery she has been in recovery since before I was born. So seeing her recovery and how she works, you know, her, her program of recovery is just so inspiring. And when I needed help, I knew where to look for that help. So well, it's, it's yeah. been amazing. That's super helpful, first and foremost, to have somebody, obviously, that's been through that. But when you talk about uh, it being a family disease, and, and forgive my ignorance, what no. is it that you mean by that? Is it like a genetic thing or is it is there something that I'm not that I'm not aware of as far as addiction? So, I would say that I wouldn't necessarily say that using drugs is a genetic thing. Sure. I think that when we look at addiction, it's a brain disease like the Surgeon General issued the facing addiction um in America sort of outline a few years ago and you know, they classified it as a brain disease. And I think there's so many environmental factors that play into addiction as well. Um, and that's that includes, you know, childhood trauma and what children, and I'm going to focus a lot on children too when I talk sure. about this, but what children experience and how they see their parents cope with things, with life events. And some of that is, you know, mirrored in the way they cope with things. So whether that's, oh, when mom's stressed, she drinks or, and, and it's not, it's not all the time. It's not always happening that way, but you know, childhood trauma definitely plays a part in it. And 
in terms of the genetics, I think I think more mental health wise, like depression and anxiety play a huge role in that. Because if somebody's like if somebody like myself has undiagnosed mental health disorders, mm-hmm. a lot of times we self medicate and we end up turning towards drugs and alcohol to deal with that pain. So in a lot, and for me, in my experience, as far as, uh, you know, drug and alcohol addiction, a lot of the, you know, people that I serve with, uh, unfortunately are going through a lot of those difficulties right now. And it does have to do specifically with trauma, PTSD, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And I know you tend to work specifically with, with youth ad- addiction issues. Is there anything else like that impacts how kids in particular, I guess, see addiction? Or is that something that's almost habit forming in a way just based on like their environment and like you said, traumas of of sorts? Is that how essentially that ends up happening? It varies from person to person, I would say. And I think when we talk about addiction in teens, it can be very hard to label it addiction. Sometimes parents like to say, my kid's experimenting, or they're just having fun, or they're only smoking weed. or And I think, and forgive me if I'm going a little off topic with this, but I think sometimes too, like when I was a teenager, I didn't think I wasn't like addicted to anything. I didn't think I had an addiction problem. And... It took some time to really come to grips with the fact that, oh my goodness, like I I do have a drug problem. I do struggle with drugs and alcohol. And it's 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 difficult for a young person to realize that, especially when we have this image of what a quote unquote addict looks like. It's right. the person on the street corner with a needle in their arm. And that's not while that is the case for some people, it's not always the case for everybody who struggles with this disease. So as far as young people are concerned, how, and I don't know if you would draw on your own experience of this, but how is it that you come to that realization? Is it a friend? Is it a family member? Is it a self-actualization at some point? How does how does that typically happen for, for especially young people? Well, I can only speak from my experience, really. And that was that I needed to see other young people recovering. I think that for a long time, um, I tried to compare myself with other, excuse me, with other people in recovery. And I always thought, well, if I have this problem when I'm 40, then I'll do something about it. Or if I'm still doing this stuff and partying and all of this other nonsense, when I'm 50 or 60, then I'll take care of it. But right now I'm just living my life. I'm having fun. I'm doing what society says I'm supposed to do. And, you know, I I got sober my senior year of high school. And it wasn't until I understood that recovery is for young people too and young adults that I said, oh, then maybe I can do this as well because I knew there was a problem. You know, I was waking up every day not wanting to live and I just lost the will to to live, to do anything. And it just wasn't 
like me at all to to feel that way. Like that wasn't the Carly that I used to be. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it it, it absolutely does. I guess it, just going back to the first part of what you were talking about, and, and I, I should probably steer away from trying to sum up addiction because it's impossible realistically because each person, I assume, has their own unique experience, has their own you know, whether it's mental health issues, trauma, whatever it is that they're trying to work through. So I should probably stop trying to tie it up with a pretty bow. But realistically, it also sounds like a lot of it, especially for young people, it's a perception issue. Like you were Mm -hmm. saying, you look at somebody who's on the street, maybe homeless or in some sort of disarray. And you're like, well, that's not me. Like, I'm still in school. I still, you know, I get grades and I might not be an A student, but life isn't that bad. Um, Right. When you have that, and it sounds like this is something you experienced, that undiagnosed mental health issue, is that where for you that kind of, I, I hate to put it this way again, but this kind of slide occurs to where you get to the point of potentially self-medicating or just living to the fullest or, or like you said, what society tells you? Is that just like that slippery slope? It It really is a slippery slope. And I think, yeah, I... The mental health piece is huge. Mm-hmm. And I also have to say that there was that childhood trauma piece is also really important. You know, when when you don't feel when you have like low self-esteem due to um due to contributing factors as a young child and you know, for me it was you know, I never felt like I quite fit in or I mm-hmm. always needed to people please and all these other things. And, oh, if you liked blue, I liked blue. Or if you liked yellow, I liked yellow because I just wanted to be accepted. And once I found once I found drugs and alcohol, I was like, well, this is it. Like I'm, I feel accepted. I have peers that are doing the same thing. And I found myself in this in this mode of like this just feels right like I'm comfortable with me um Mm -hmm. and I I don't remember exactly what I felt the first time I used but it took me outside of of the pain and you know whatever was going on in in my mind and with myself and I uh yeah there there really is that slippery slope and a lot of parents are and I hate to hate to nag on parents but sure. um, well I mean we, we they do hear, raise kids right we hear a lot of times like oh it's only alcohol or it's only marijuana and while while I see the point in that and I see like not making a huge deal out of it like I see the one side of things I also see where that could be enough to to hurt a child like that could be enough to where you know yes it's not heroin or crack but a a a young person or anybody can still find themselves hitting their bottom with those substances i've seen it happen Mm -hmm. you know it's it's not necessarily about the drug it's about what the substance is doing to that person right so in mo or in a lot of cases, and it sounds like yours as well, to some degree, it's removing you from this feeling of not fitting in. You don't you don't have a community, and all of a sudden, if you use these 
substances, whatever they may be, uh, now you feel accepted as part of a specific community, which is a good feeling for most people, right? Right. We all want connection. So when we go back to this parenting thing, me being a parent of, of little ones, and I love them to death, <laughs> one of the things that I always, or I shouldn't say always, one of the things I think about from time to time, and I wish I had a better like foresight being in like high school and out of high school and whatnot, how difficult it is being a female going through high school. And I feel like going through that, there's definitely plenty of pitfalls for you to trip up into, if you will, about not feeling accepted, not being a part of a social group, et cetera, et cetera, and then falling into one of these unfortunate traps. Is there something potentially, and, and I'm asking I'm asking you just for an opinion, I guess, is how is it that I can help try to guide my girls in a direction that it will ultimately be positive? Granted, I can't control every variable, but are there things that maybe I can do, especially as a, a father figure, to help them be okay with themselves, be accepted in their own group, whatever that may or may not be? Or is that something that just either happens or doesn't? It's a little bit of all of that. Okay. And I I hear this question from parents a lot, especially parents of, you know, young teens mm-hmm. is, you know, what what can I do to to stop it from happening? Or what can I do to um to like you said, just guide them in in a healthy way. And I think, you know, I think a lot about what I'm going to do with my kids someday um, when I have them. (laughs) And, you know, if it's just one of those things like, and I'm going to speak from my own experience and from what, from my perspective is just establishing what, like our values as a family and you know my fiance is also in recovery and we we value a clean lifestyle and just setting those not boundaries but just setting that example of mm. you know this is how we cope with our feelings and this is what we do when we feel sad or when we feel angry or you know just just validating children's feelings is huge you know, especially when you can establish trust with a child. And like, that's just, that's big. You know, I used to mm-hmm. tell my mom all sorts of stuff and I would go to her with everything. Once I started using, and even even a little bit before that, I just distanced myself from her. And that was probably looking back a, a huge red flag of, wow, I wasn't, like looking back, I wasn't opening up to my mom as much in eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade, you know, mm-hmm. and just establishing that trust and and a value as a family. And I don't know if that answers the question, but I I can't stress that enough as just looking for patterns too of oh my child really excels in this area or. Um, they love doing X, Y, and Z. Once I, once I started like not showing up to volleyball practice and once I started not getting the straight A's like I was used to getting, like that was when something was, was up. Gotcha. Well, I don't know 
that anyone could ever answer that question, but I think that's the best answer I'm probably ever going to get. So thank you for that. First and foremost, Um, it's, it's scary and it's really difficult because at the same time, you certainly don't want to be a helicopter parent, right? right? I mean, I don't want to smother them with my presence constantly. Granted, they're super young right now, so they get that whether they like it or not right now. Right. Uh, but as they get older, right, being able to like, oh, let them explore who they are and really grow into who they're going to be is extremely important. And uh, unfortunately for me, super scary. I'm yeah. from a, a family of boys primarily, so everything was all masculine. And if you had an issue, we fought and that was it. Whereas with girls, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a there's an emotional level to a little girl that sometimes I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. So you went through obviously recovery, your your seven years now, which again, congratulations. Thank you. What got you to that next step of being an advocate? Did you sponsor somebody at some point? Or how did you get involved? So that is a great question. <laughs> it's all kind of a blur. I think it was I remember vividly in my outpatient, uh, in the outpatient facility I went to three days a week, my counselor said to me, she pulled me into her office. She said, okay, there's Carly, the recovering addict. And then there's Carly who? And I struggled for so long to answer that question because I was just so gung-ho in the beginning about, you know, going to 12-step meetings and hanging out with, you know, the quote unquote right people and, you know, working on myself and reading the self-help books. And I was just so into it because I knew what my life was like before that. And I just didn't want to go back. And I was scared of a relapse. And I was scared of what would happen if I didn't take care of myself the way that I did. And it got to a point where I just really fell in love with being of service and helping others. And I realized that that just does something to me, like in my heart and in my soul that I can't even put into words. Um, You know, because people – and I thought about it and I said, you know, people invested so much of their time in me and – helped me along my journey that I've right. got to do it for other people. And especially not to not to make them more important, but especially young people because I was 18 when I started this journey and if only I had another 18-year-old saying, "Hey, I can do it, you can too." And that's that was one of the things that really inspired me to to do what I what I did and what I am doing. That counselor asking that question, quite frankly, if I think about it, if you apply in any scenario, could be for somebody the scariest question you could ask them. Yes. <laughs> right? Like I know you as this, but who are you? Yeah. And and having that as your trigger point to really evaluate what you're doing after that, I'm sure I mean obviously has been life changing because it's been more than just your recovery. You've You've gone on to do so much more to to help other people uh, at a personal level, it sounds like, uh, a community level, and as well as a governmental level. Yeah. Yeah. 
wow, when I when you think of it that way, <laughs> I guess uh, I guess there are many layers to that, huh? There are, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, to continue on that path there, as far as like a community level, because I imagine that that's where you first started after after you had that question. At some point, you were becoming more involved in some sort of a community, and I have to imagine that that was a big turning point as well. Oh yeah. Oh, What's yeah. that like? What when you find that community, especially coming out of, and again, I forgive me if if my you know my language is incorrect as far as what these things are, but I imagine you go through this initial recovery process, which is X amount of time, whatever that may or may not be, and then you step outside of that point, and I imagine that you're looking to find that community. You mentioned earlier, like hanging out with the right people and finding, you know, the right people to be around. What what was that process like for you? Did was there one already available for you or did you have to kind of create it for yourself? Well, it's it's interesting because me and my mom both belong to the same uh, 12-step fellowship. And it's uh, she said to me, my sponsor is not going to be your sponsor. My sponsor's sponsor is not going to be your sponsor. And all my support network cannot be your sponsor. Like she was very adamant about me getting my own network of people. And that was probably the biggest gift my mom could have given me was literally taking me as like a little bird in her hand and like shooing me out of the cage, just kind of saying, fly, do what you got to do. And I'll tell you, I learned a lot about myself. I learned that I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I, uh, I learned that it's when I'm honest and I'm just being myself, I can make friends and I can build a community for myself. It was okay. very interesting. It was a very interesting experience. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm grateful for exactly how it happened. I, I wonder to myself now, like you describing what your mom said, like, hey, this is great. You're probably, you know, you're, you're doing it, but you can't do any of mine. Yes. In that moment, you said that that was like the best gift ever. What What is it about that gift in particular that you felt like it was so important to you? I needed to ask for help on my own. I needed to be the mm. one to put myself out there. I needed to be the one to go up to people and feel a little intimidated and ask not necessarily, hey, can I be your friend? But you know, <laughs> sure. after after a meeting going up to a group of, of, you know, younger people and saying, Hey, you guys are going for coffee after this. Do you mind if I tag along? And just putting myself out there as somebody who needs help, just like everybody else in the room. And I'm not different. I'm not, I mean, of course I'm different, but (laughs) you know, cause we're all, we're all unique in our own way, but (laughs) we're all struggling at the end of the day from the same disease in that room. And for that hour and a half, I'm no better or worse than anybody else in there. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason why I can't introduce myself and build a network that's going to save my life. Do you find that to be true generally? I mean, obviously you're an extrovert, so it probably comes a little more natural to you. But when you talk about like being able to talk to people and being on the same level with people, is that for you something that's true generally? Or is that something that's really specifically talked about in a setting like that? Um, 
I think I think both. Um, I don't know. I love I love talking to people. <laughs> I sure. love uh, I love just getting to know people. But I think there's something about, and this is true for any ailment, any disease, any uh, struggle anybody's going through. When you have and you know other people that have the experience of going through the exact same thing you have, there's a whole new level of connection. There's a camaraderie almost. You, yeah. you understand what other people have gone through because you've had to go through it. Absolutely. And I think yeah. whether it's addiction, whether it's a cancer support group or um, literally any anything that people are you know, going through or, you know, f- f- figuring out. It's it's so important that we have people in our lives that can offer that experience and not tell us what to do, but tell us what they've done. Yeah. Wow. That, just that specific perspective and, and even outside of an ailment, I mean, for me as a veteran, whenever I talk to somebody who's a veteran, I tend to, you tend to have that instant kinship. Like, okay, yes. I, I, I'm pretty sure I know what this person's about and I feel comfortable with them almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Is it similar in that kind of um, fashion? Oh, for sure. So Absolutely. as you're going through this process of building a community, obviously with you being an extrovert, I mean, you were the one that even reached out to me just to, to talk, <laughs> which was super cool. And I appreciate it so much. Um do you, as you're going through that whole thing, do you then, as an extrovert, kind of use your skill to reach out to people who might not be blessed with that ability to just talk to people? I do. And it's so important. And I'm not trying to, you know, boost my ego or put myself on a pedestal, but. Well, after... Carly, sometimes you have to. So <laughs> go for it. All right. Well, give me that uh, that platform. I'll stand on it. Uh, so, I think I think I try to make myself as available as possible for people, especially like young women. And you know, after when we did have in person meetings because of COVID, it's all virtual now. Right. But I would go up to to people and just say, "Hey, like, are you new?" And just you know, put my, like, invite them because I remember how scary it was to put myself out there. And if I can just make that connection and make it a little easier, I'm going to do that. Have you in that whole process made some, some very special or lifelong friendships? I would imagine so, but is that a thing that, that tends to occur or is this very specific setting for, for recovery? You know, I've made friends in various sectors of, you know, what helps me in my recovery today, whether that be in a 12-step meeting or at my church or uh, in doing volunteer work. I, I'm just so grateful that I have a network of people that are a little more diverse than just one of the facets of recovery, if that makes sense. Yeah, it it totally does. And just getting different perspectives from people like not everybody at my church is in recovery and not everybody 
that I volunteer with is, you know, in the same 12 step fellowship. So it's, it's just, it's good to get like different perspectives as well. Hmm. So. Interesting. Uh, in those other settings, whether it be your church, whether it be volunteering, mm-hmm. does, does that question ever come up to you? Do, like, do people know you enough to know that um, you know, you've been through the recovery process and, and you're this far into that. And do do people ever talk to you about that? People who maybe either aren't in recovery or might know someone who they think might need some help? They do. And I'm one of those people, you know, we talk a lot about in like this particular 12-step fellowship, mm-hmm. excuse me, about anonymity and how, you know, I'm obviously not mentioning <laughs> the fellowship by name. Right. Um, but I I choose not to be anonymous today and I can still I can still work a program in that fellowship but also live my truth today. And I think that if we if we don't talk about things like this and we just stay silent, we're doing such a disservice to people who are really struggling. And I'm I am grateful that yes, like you like you had asked, uh, people in those other areas of my life do ask me for um, some experience and hope when it comes to different things. I know a number of people that have a family member struggling and they're like, you know, what can I do to help? And, you know, giving them not necessarily advice, but suggestions. And right. it's uh, it's so nice to just be helpful today and not necessarily have all the answers, but, you know, I was from where I was in addiction to now I can use my experience to help someone. That's incredible. Yeah. Is, is that, you've mentioned a phrase, live your truth, which it sounds like you're doing, I mean, dare I say to the fullest, is that something that's part of your program, part of your recovery, something that's really important to you to, to, to be able to continue and and live your truth, as you said? I would say so. Yeah. And just embrace myself is the other thing, like living my truth and just embracing who I am. And I'm not going to hide and, you know, pretend like I don't have a past and -hmm. pretend like I don't have, you know, my own demons and my own set of uh i i guess they're really not secrets if we're talking about them but sure i uh i think yeah it's i'm sorry i totally lost track of what i was saying but (laughs) that's completely okay it's yeah it's just important to to live to live my truth like like we were just talking about and um not deny myself my experience Hmm. that is again another very powerful phrase not to deny yourself your experience because i feel like whether you're in recovery or in any other facet of life being true to yourself regardless of where you are is so important yet so difficult Mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's really good that obviously you're at this point um um super happy for you. And the fact that you're able to 
so kind of fluently and eloquently. I know you probably don't think that's the case, but to, to be able to talk about it in the way that you have been is, uh, it's fascinating. It's eye opening, And uh, I just hope that, you know, whether, whether you're someone who's recovering or again, at any other stage of life, you can take the, literally the words you're saying and apply them. Because I, I think what you're talking about is something that applies again, everywhere. And, and let me just go right into the next thing. And that is, is it, it sounds like religion for you also played a, a pretty significant part of not just your recovery, but who you are. Mm-hmm. Where specifically did you pick that up? Is that something that you had growing up? Is that a, something that you found during recovery? Is that post recovery? Or again, I, I don't know if that's the right term, but. No, that that's a good question. I think, you know, I grew up in a very spiritual household and my mom and I went to church all the time growing up. And, you know, for a long time, I I didn't quite understand my relationship with God. And it it was a little bit tricky. And I felt like this distant thing. Like I wasn't, I was just going because my mom was going and she would drag me there. And sure. you know, I, en- I enjoyed it sometimes, but it wasn't until I got into recovery that you know, in in the the program that I work where it talks about a higher power and it talks about again a power greater than ourselves and and I just went right back to my roots of, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in church and I came to a realization that like, yeah, I do need I do need something, <laughs> you know. Um sure. Like maybe there is a God and it's not me type of thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, it was very, it very much evolved over the course of my recovery. Um, but yeah, it plays a huge role. It sounds like it plays a role in the program as well, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. is and again, obviously, we're not naming any names or anything, but to your knowledge, is that specific to a particular religion or is it just the sense of a higher, mightier power, for lack of a better term? It's just a sense of a higher power. And okay. in the program, it does it. The only requirements um, are that this power be loving, caring and greater than myself. And I worked with that, like that I can work with and that I can definitely get behind. So sure. it's, it, it really opens the doors up to anybody, um, no matter what religion and, and they always say it's a spiritual, not religious program, which, gotcha. which I also like. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it's, it can literally be catered to anybody. Right. I mean, changing the phrasing from, from religion to spiritual, certainly, allows a level of freedom that I think would open the door for a lot more people, which is a great thing, obviously. So continuing on with your community, at some point as you're building your own personal community through your sponsor or your sponsor, sponsor, everything that you're doing at that point, at some point you stepped into a larger arena and that is becoming an advocate uh, here in the state of New York. How did that happen? Where Did somebody just say, hey, Carly, I think you'd be good at this. Let's go. Actually, yeah. <laughs> was it? <laughs> it really was. Okay. It really was. I, for a while, I was volunteering with a grassroots organization in Rochester. 
and I somehow got involved with this youth advisory council. Mm -hmm. And from there, somebody from the state, um, from the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services, reached out to me and – oh, I'm sorry. They changed their name. Office of Addiction Supports and Services. Okay. So Oasis. And they – somebody from that council that was kind of putting it together reached out to me one day and said, hey, there's this new uh, position opening up at, you know, the state, not the state level, but at a state organization. And do you know any young people that might be interested in applying? And I was like, me, (laughs) I definitely (laughs) would. And so it was, it, it literally took one week. I received that phone call. I applied for the job, got the interview got the job and you know working for that organization I know and working for that (laughs) organization for like three years I think it was I just oh it was just an amazing experience so let's talk a little bit about that experience and more specifically to the state level what is it that's so important about whether it be state local federal government in relation to uh, addiction specifically and, and ultimately recovery. I'm sorry. I blinked out a little bit. That's okay. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think to answer the question, I, there's just so many layers to this thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think advocacy plays a huge part in it. So where then, if I may, I imagine that you did things like focus groups or talks, seminars, yep. things of that nature. But at a at a governmental or a legislative level, what is it that needs to be done? Is it, for example, I know Narcan is specifically a, a hot topic when it comes to um, overdosing. Is advocating for or supporting legislation that gets more of that out to EMTs or people? Like, is that something that you would have done? Is that something that's important? At the yeah. government level? We actually, that's a great question. We had quite a few, well, each year, uh, Friends of Recovery New York did um, and still does an advocacy day once a year where we rally people from all across the state to come to Albany and talk with their legislators and their assembly men and women and senators and just you know, talk to them about some policies that we want to change and new legislation that we want to um, support or want them to support. And when I was doing work under Friends of Recovery, I was doing work for Youth Voices Matter, which was the youth and young adult like version of Friends of Recovery. And sure. I... I loved advocacy. Like that was probably my favorite thing was putting together policy agendas and talking with legislators and talking with, you know, people that were, you know, in charge, you know, and and telling them, you know, a little bit about my story and how what we were advocating for would really help people like me and people like, you know, the, the individuals I brought with me to Albany. And we advocated for a whole bunch of stuff. You know, I mean, it ranged from recovery high schools to 
collegiate recovery programs to supporting more youth recovery community organizations and just a whole bunch of other stuff. And I, I just loved doing that. How, how do you make the case to a state legislator if in this example, right? That's what we would be dealing with. And when you go down to do the rally, that's what you're asking people to do. If I got a chance to sit down with a state legislator, what does that conversation sound like? Um, it sounds like a lot of numbers. <laughs> okay. Is it just budget? Does it come down to money realistically? Or? Well, it, I mean, it does. I know a lot of times we've quite a few meetings that me and, you know, my colleagues and some of the other young people that we brought with us to Albany, some of our meetings that we had with legislators, we would, you know, pitch them all of this stuff and all these ideas and then they would say to us, okay, what's what do you guys need? Like, what's the budget for this? And we right. were like, uh, I don't know, whatever you got. <laughs> <laughs> like, so it's uh, there were a lot of learning opportunities, definitely. And it, it is a lot about numbers. Like I, you know, we always had a sheet of statistics and, mm-hmm. you know, giving them the the data and everything else to support what we were trying to advocate for. But yeah, it's budget is huge. How do you make that case? Like, obviously you said you're using statistics, but do you, or did you, I should say, I'm sure you still have your pulse on some of this stuff, but when you have that conversation, are you trying to specifically make the case for a county or a region or a, or the state as a whole? Like, how does that? Are there strategies that you use, saying, "Hey, look, if we do this here, it'll alleviate your budget over here because we're not spending so much on X or Y." D- does that essentially what it sounds oh, like? Definitely, or- definitely. And I think it depends on who we met with mm-hmm. um, that we would target the things that we said and what we wanted to get across um for for most of our meetings we met with you know the senator and the assemblywoman that led the oh what was it like they were the chairs of the substance use committee gotcha for new york state and they were in a different area than what i live in but we decided we're going to go to them with the statewide picture and then meet with our – like there were a few local legislators that I met with to talk about what we could do here in Monroe County. Um, so it it depends on who you meet with, how you want to get your point across and really look into the, the county data versus the statewide data. So there's there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a super in-depth conversation. And I imagine that for you, it was probably like going back to school and compiling (laughs) PowerPoints all over again to try to show your teacher, you know, what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. It was, it's definitely interesting. And there was, I remember the first year I, I advocated, like the first time I stepped inside an, an office in Albany and boy talk about being nervous <laughs> like oh man it was right it was i was nervous but well that's those are the movers and shakers right 
That's so I can definitely cool. understand the, you know, timid nervousness initially, but I imagine, at least in the brief time that I've known you, you probably stepped into it pretty quick. I mean, that's nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely took a while to to not be, not feel so intimidated and just mm-hmm. recognize that this is just another person I'm talking to. Um, I mean, they do carry, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the roles of, of, people in government like they they have a lot of weight on their shoulders that they carry um but yeah it's it at the end of the day you're just talking it's just a conversation and you know if they can help that's great if not we change what we got to do and we come up with a new policy agenda you know it's at the end of the day we're fighting for people's lives and I just I had to recognize that the the motive behind what I was going there for and who I was going there for was so much greater than me being scared. If that gotcha. makes, if that makes sense, so it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, it completely makes sense without getting too nuanced about what the conversations were. Yeah, I, I could absolutely see that. The other thing that you got to do, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty confident, but this is your mom with you on Rock and Recovery. Yes. And you guys got a chance to talk to our local county executive, Adam Bello. We did. Now, with that conversation, what I found interesting as I was listening to it was he was pointing out the difficulty of, you know, strategically getting the right people in the right positions and specifically for what you guys were working towards and advocating for was essentially a a county sponsored counselor, for lack of a better word. I think he used a different term, but... What does that sound like to you as somebody who was a big, uh, you know, state level advocate for addiction and and recovery and services for that? I think the county's plan is a great plan. I think that having somebody be the addiction supports director, I think that was the title. I think you're right. Yep is uh is great you know i i don't think as much as we look for you know government to help it's sometimes it's not always it's it has to be the people with experience that are put into positions like that that can actually create that change and be like you said the mover and shaker and when you have experience and when you work in the field for a long time, that's that I think is a good criteria for that position. And it's at the end of the day, it's about education and it's about spreading awareness. Um, like that seems to I, be a huge challenge as well. Just having people aware and know what's going on and what they can do seems to be one of the biggest like obstacles for you know, an advocacy, an advocacy group like yours. It It is. And I think the county has done a great job, Monroe County. Um, you know, the sheriff's department has updated their heroin task force website. And each month they come out with the number of overdoses, whether they be fatal or, um, or the person survived. And it's, we're getting the numbers now. And mm-hmm. that's something that we didn't, we weren't getting a couple years ago. So 
we are we are moving forward um in in certain ways i think being isolated <laughs> during covid hasn't been helpful with this epidemic um yeah. with this second epidemic not being covid but being addiction and it's uh it's sad that the numbers have gone up in terms well, when, of doses when we're all isolated that continues to exacerbate probably a lot of people's feelings and challenges and in why they probably initially used to begin with just being completely isolated Absolutely. nobody likes that feeling right so i feel like it's kind of a unfortunately a reflex uh for folks who are going through you know addiction to to have to use in order to cope with it mm-hmm. and you're right that's definitely the I mean, the mental health side of COVID is something I feel like isn't talked about a whole lot, but is more significant than people realize. Oh, for sure. I'm sure. I'm sure you see it a lot more with you know your Zoom meetings and things like that. You you probably see it. Hey, somebody's missing, and it's hard to get that personal connection over a computer screen. It really is. It really is, and I I so feel for people who are just either just entering recovery during this time or have gone back out and and started using again it's just like i don't even have the words to to say it's it's devastating this yeah this isolation has just devastated us and i get that we need to be careful and take all precautions and i understand the severity of covid but it just you just don't know what the impact is going to be you know when it comes to other issues that like you said are just magnified by mm-hmm. the isolation and, and the fact of the matter is is that we're still in the midst of a pretty severe and outrageous opioid epidemic i mean yeah the last few years have just been if i'm not mistaken just just absurd with the amount of you know pills that are freely available which it seems to be and i could be wrong that's that's again a slippery slope into mm-hmm. into other drugs uh, unfortunately yeah yep and uh it's it really is and i'm i'm glad that you know we did we did advocate for some legislation in terms of you know pills and and uh opiates and stuff like that but so i'm i'm happy that we're working on you know not giving somebody a 90 day supply of pills to take home um right, from the right. doctor's office but yeah it's it it really is. Well, let me continue on briefly. And one of the super crazy things that was pointed out to me not too long ago is when you're talking about recovery, people always make the assumption, and I shouldn't generalize, but I'm going to anyway. They make the assumption that when you're going through recovery, that's like the only thing you, you are doing. But the fact of the matter is, is that life happens when you're in recovery. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that um, I believe I read uh, on Youth Voices Matter, something you wrote in 2019, you know, talking about the difficulty of having to go through grieving as well as being in recovery. Yeah. What is it that people like myself who haven't been through that, what is it that we're missing that makes that so, so much more difficult? It, does it go back to this mental health thing or this isolation issue where you just feel like you're all alone all over again? Like, what is it that we're missing when we're talking about folks in recovery, having to deal with like life during recovery? That's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think there's an added level of 
just, I don't know if fear is the right word, but there have been plenty of times in my recovery where I have felt sad, angry, um, and just upset. And a lot of people would label those quote unquote bad feelings. And it's like, sure, no feeling is bad. Feelings are feelings. And that's kind of how I try to look at things today. But, you know, when I was in active addiction, if I was having a bad day, it was like immediately to a substance. Right. Um, if I was upset, it was immediately, I don't want to feel this and I need an escape. And I think one of the things that people in recovery need, including myself, is that when we are going through life on life's terms and experiencing whether it's loss or um, disappointment or anything is just somebody to talk to and somebody to listen, somebody to Mm. validate what we're feeling and really just be there for us. You know, it's, it can be so lonely being upset and being sad or angry and just knowing that I'm not alone is enough to keep me grounded and keep me safe from not using or not being self-destructive. Hmm. Without, obviously, you know, you're you, I'm me, we don't know what other people feel and struggle with, but for you, does that allow you, so let's say you're sad, right? Mm-hmm talking to somebody, having them listen to you and just say, yeah, I would be sad too. Is that is that really what it comes down to? Just validating and making sure that you know that this is normal to be sad about? Is that like kind of it, part it of it? It really is. And it, it sounds so silly, but it like for me, I just need somebody to, you know, not even tell me, you know, oh, it'll get better. Like, I don't necessarily need that. I need you to say, wow, that really sucks and empathize with me. Mm. Like, I I don't even know how else to put it. I, I don't think there's any other way to put it. That's, that's, I mean, it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. We just, and it's not just for people who are in recovery or struggling with any sort of addiction. It's, that's a general statement, right? At the yeah. end of the day, if I'm upset about work and I come home, I don't want my wife to try to fix the issue. Just hear me for a few minutes. Let me right. complain. Let me make make it feel like it's normal and then I can move on with life. Right. And I think that's one of the things that we forget. Like addiction, while it is so complex, the I don't want to say the answers, but the ways we help people in recovery can be so simple. And so, you know, I feel like sometimes when people think, oh, they're in recovery, I don't know how, like we overthink things sometimes yes. and yep. it's like, no, I'm still at the core. I'm still a human <laughs> and I still, you know, like you said, just if I come home from work and I had a bad day, let me just rant for a second and, <laughs> you know, not necessarily have somebody fix it, but empathy, just have that empathy. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate all the time, Carly. Um, I I hope nothing but the best for you going forward. Again, congratulations on on seven years, and I hope that continues well on 
uh, for as long as possible. Um, but again, thank you so much for coming on and taking time uh, with me to answer all of my sometimes silly outlandish questions. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.